We hate these people. They are the scum of the earth. This is who Jesus called to follow him. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So as we read all those passages together like that, and you, as you were on the lookout for those things that we talked about, the, the confrontations, the disputes with Jesus, you plainly saw how all that fits together, how the same pattern is repeated five times. From last week, we looked at the story of the paralytic, and from that story, the, the objection that they have to Jesus is when Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And they're thinking in their hearts, how can he say this? He's blaspheming. Jesus hears and he answers with that, that statement that he makes. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is easier to say, stand up and walk or your sins are forgiven. So now you see that I have authority on earth to, to forgive sins. And then it goes from that to the passage before us today in which Jesus is reclining and at the table and eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And they say, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? And then Jesus responds with that, with that same sort of pithy, sort of proverb type of statement when he says that uh, only the, the physicians are here for the sick, not for the well. And the Son of Man has come not for the righteous, but for the sinners. And then it goes from that to then the following episode when Jesus is confronted about his disciples and how they're not fasting. And the disciples of John are fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. And they say, how come your, your disciples aren't fasting? And then Jesus responds with that story about the bridegroom. They can't, they can't fast when the bridegroom is here. The day will come when they will fast. And then he follows it up with those two proverbs. The proverb about the old, the old garment and the new patch. And then the proverb about the new wine and the old wineskins. And then after that, Jesus is confronted with his disciples about his disciples plucking grain and eating some grain on the Sabbath. And they say, why are they doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And then Jesus responds with that story from the life of David. And then he responds and he follows that up with yet again another proverbial type saying, which, which is to say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then finally, the final episode is when he's in the synagogue there and the man with the withered hand is there and they're watching him. They say nothing this time, but they're watching him to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. Jesus knows their hearts. He hears their thoughts. And then he then says to them, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? And then he heals his hand. And then after all that, that culminates with them then leaving and going and conspiring with the Herodians to destroy him. So you see how all five episodes are stacked up. All of them follow the same pattern. The first one and the last one are, are objections against Jesus that are thought in people's hearts. The second, third, and fourth one are objections against Jesus that are spoken. All of them are answered in a similar sort of way with Jesus responding with a proverb or a truism or a pithy kind of a statement. 
followed by a statement about the person or the authority of the Son of Man. And then all of that concludes with Jesus's enemies going and conspiring with the Herodians to kill him or to destroy him. And so that's the section that we're in. So clearly Mark has put all this together for a purpose. Clearly all of these episodes didn't happen chronologically, but instead they are put together in order for this theme to be coherent. These episodes could have happened at any point in Jesus's life, but Mark as well as the other gospel writers have put them together for the purpose of teaching what is for us before us here this morning. So we looked last week at the episode of the paralytic and the healing of the paralytic and the forgiving of the paralytic sins and Jesus' statement that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And from that we then go to this episode of the calling of Levi to be his follower, to be his disciple, and then the party at Levi's house that is to follow. So that's what we'll look at this morning. And as we normally do, what we'll do is just sort of walk to the passage, just step by step, to make sure that we first understand what's happening, what Mark is saying to us, and then we'll back up, and then we'll look at it from the perspective of understanding the spiritual meaning. What is the spiritual meaning that Mark has for us in this passage? So beginning here from verse 13, he went out again by the sea. So I want to just pause right there and just do a little bit of an, just an aside kind of note, because I like to do this. Because... We live in a society that just won't give up on this nonsense about the lost gospels, the false gospels, the Gnostic gospels. I've heard it till I'm sick of it. I know that you've heard it till you're sick of it. But every time I come across something in the scriptures that says to me, this idea of lost gospels and false gospels is nonsense, I want to just pause briefly and point it out to you. And here we see something else that tells us that once again, we are dealing with the authentic gospel of the life of Jesus Christ because we're told in verse 13, he went out again by the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. So the picture that we're shown of Jesus in all four gospels is a picture of a man who is constantly on the move. Probably none of us have taken the time, I hope you haven't taken the time because it would be a waste of time, to read any of the lost gospels or Gnostic gospels, but in those you're given a completely different picture of Jesus. You're not given a picture of Jesus who goes to people. Instead, you're given a picture, almost a uniform picture, of a man who is sedentary, sits under a tree, sort of this religious guru kind of thing, and people come to him and ask him questions, and he gives these wise sorts of answers. That's how the false gospels portray Jesus almost uniformly. But all four of the authentic gospels tell us that Jesus was a man constantly on the move. He was here going by the sea. And Mark says, again, so he's been by the sea. This is not the first time. This is, of course, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias. He is again going by the sea. He's teaching by the sea. He's going to be on the sea in boats by the sea. He's always constantly on the move. And we're told that people are coming to him. The crowd is coming to him. As we've talked about this, this crowd that has grown in size and grown in fervency. And so from chapter 1, verse 38, through the end of Jesus' life, he's never going to be left alone unless he loses sleep, forsakes sleep, and gets off alone by himself or something like that. He's going to have crowds following him, crowds around him all the time. And so here he is once again beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the crowd is coming to him again, and we're told, and he was teaching them. So once again, we'll just point out what Mark is showing us repeatedly through his gospel is that this is what Jesus was consumed with. This is what consumed Jesus's energy. This is what consumed his focus and his time not the miracles, 
not the crowds, but he is focused on teaching those who come to him, preaching the truth. That is his central focus up until the point that he's going to offer his life as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin. So they come to him. He's teaching them. Now, verse 14, and he passed by, and I'm sorry, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So now we encounter this fellow Levi. And then Jesus issues this call to follow him. And we're told that he immediately follows him. So this parallels, of course, the, the chapter one episode of the call of the four fishermen, where Jesus uh, again there said to them, follow me. And they immediately followed him and became his followers. This is the parallel to that episode. However, this is, this is a little bit different in the sense that Jesus here is not, of course, calling fishermen. He's calling a tax collector. So we'll talk in just a moment about tax collectors and we'll talk about how this fits into the story and why this is here. And then after that, we'll talk about this fellow Levi and who he was. But as we see Jesus issue this call, the first thing for us to just make note of is that this call to follow him. He says, follow me. And Levi gets up and immediately begins following him. We should understand Jesus is not placing Levi into some kind of a trance. Jesus is not hypnotizing Levi and he just walks by and says, follow me. And Levi just stands up and just follows him in some sort of hypnotic trance. This is almost certainly, not almost, this is certainly not Levi's first encounter with Jesus. Levi has experienced Jesus before. He's heard his teaching. He's likely witnessed miracles from Jesus. He also has likely had conversations with Jesus prior to this. So this is not just Jesus passing by and passing some sort of magic wand over Levi and he just rising up and following mindlessly like that. Instead, this is the moment in Levi's life when Jesus says to him, this is it. This is time for you to leave everything behind and follow me, which he then does and follows him. So this man, Levi, we, we consider him to be the same man as the one that we know of as Matthew. Now we'll talk about that a little bit later. First, we're gonna talk about tax collectors. But after we talk about tax collectors, we'll talk about Levi and Matthew and are they the same person? But for, just, for, for our purposes right now, we'll just consider Levi to be the same person as the gospel writer, Matthew. So Levi is this, at this point, he's this tax collector. And we'll just talk for just a few minutes about tax collectors, just to kind of get into our mind what it is or who it is that Jesus just called to follow him. So as we're probably familiar, at least somewhat, with tax collectors in the Roman Empire, we are necessarily familiar with the, the detested, the despised aspect of these tax collectors. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were bar none the most despised people in the entire society. They were despised because they were tax collectors in a system that was designed to promote corruption and greed. The Roman system of collecting taxes was designed to provide the maximum income to Rome and to do so through exploitation by exploiting people's greed and corruption. And so tax collectors were necessarily very corrupt, very dishonest people. And here's why. So Rome collected a lot of taxes and it would collect taxes on many things that Rome would just take care of itself, such as taxing the land. Rome, Rome taxed the land, so if you own land, you pay tax to Rome, but the Romans just sort of took care of that themselves. 
But there were a myriad of other ways that, that the Roman government came up with to extract money from the people that were oftentimes, quite frankly, very creative. They would tax uh, on livestock. They would tax on people traveling on roads. They would tax by the number of axles in the cart or the number of wheels on the cart or the number of passengers on the cart. Or they would tax based on the goods that were in the cart. Levi, we're told here that Jesus sees him as he's passing by the sea. Levi's sitting in this what's, what's called a tax booth. So in your mind, you're kind of thinking of maybe like a, a privy, something like an outhouse kind of thing, just a small little booth with a window. That would have been something like what Matthew was sit, or Levi was sitting in here. And Jesus sees him as he's by the sea. So Levi likely was also by the Sea of Galilee collecting tax on the fishing industry. Remember how we talked about Capernaum was a wealthy city and its wealth was built upon the fishing industry, which was incredibly profitable there in Capernaum. So, so Levi is likely taxing here, maybe the boat's going out, the boat's going in, the catch that they bring in, the number of fishermen on the boat, something of that nature, or all of the above. He's taxing on everything that he can possibly tax upon because that's how tax collectors work. They, they got the job of being a tax collector by submitting a bid to Rome. And the highest bidder won. So they would submit a bid. A tax, if somebody wanted to be a tax collector, they would say, you know, if you give me this territory and this type of tax collecting, then I can collect this much. And the, the one who bid the highest amount got the job. And then once you got the job, you had a certain amount of time before you then owed that amount of money to Rome. And then you could go about collecting it and everything you collected above what you bid was yours. And so you see how the system is founded upon corruption. It's based, it's not as though tax collectors could become corrupt. It's as though the system itself is based upon corruption. The system itself is based upon extortion because that's how the money was made. And so Levi here would have had this job. He would have been the high bidder for this type of tax collecting job. And so he would owe this money to Rome. And so now he's collecting as much as he possibly can, can collect from the fishermen here at the Sea of Galilee. We're told in Luke chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, these are the words of John the baptizer, when John the baptizer says to tax collectors, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So we see here it was commonplace for the tax collectors to try to extract as much money as they can, as creatively as they can from the people. And so here is this man, Levi, collecting these taxes as one of the most hated people in the society of Rome. In the Roman in the, in the, in the Israeli, in the Israelite society, the tax collector was more hated than even the leper. Here's why. The tax collector extracted money or extorted money not only from his own people, not only for his own gain, but the tax collector extracted money to give to Rome. And that made the whole thing that much worse. So here are these tax collectors that are extorting and extracting money. Think of them like the, the tough guy, the arm twister sort of guy, the make you an offer you can't refuse kind of person. And they're extracting maximum money from the people who are their friends and neighbors. And not only are they doing that, they're doing that to make themselves wealthy, but then also to give that money, not just to anybody, but to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the hated Romans. 
So you can see just the amount of animosity that would already be building up within the society there. So these tax collectors, they were extraordinarily hated. In fact, Rome protected all their tax collectors with the penalty of death. If you touched a tax collector, you would die. They had to do that because they were so hated. So these tax collectors, they stood to gain quite a lot of money. They stood to make quite a bit of money. It was very profitable. If you were able to be a hard-hearted, cold-hearted, sort of tough-nosed kind of person, then you could make a lot of money being a tax collector if you were willing to pay the price. Because the job of tax collector came with quite a high cost, and the cost was your family, your friends, and your faith. It would cost you those three things. If you could be tough, if you could be cold, if you could be cold-hearted and hard-hearted, and you were willing to give up your family, your friends, and your faith, you stood to make a lot of money. So you would give up, first of all, your family because your family would immediately disown you. The tax collectors were so hated that everyone who was a tax collector, they were immediately disowned from their family. Their family would stop speaking to them. They would, in fact, oftentimes they would hold a funeral for the son who became a tax collector because that son was then to them as one dead. So you lost your family. You also lost your friends. All your friends, your network of friends, the stable, whatever stable network of friends you had was lost when you became a tax collector because your friends, the ones that you used to have, then became the ones that you were extorting for money. So you would have to make a whole new set of friends, people of the same type of work. So you would lose immediately your family, you'd lose your friends, and then you'd also lose your faith because the tax collector was barred from coming into the assembly of God's people. Once you became a tax collector, that was the last time you ever entered the assembly of God's people. You could not offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. You couldn't enter the synagogue for any of the synagogue services. Furthermore, it was against the law. It was unlawful for anyone to accept alms from a tax collector. And we've talked before about what a big role was played in the Jewish faith of the giving of alms. That was extremely important to the Jewish faith, the giving of alms to the poor. Well, if you're a tax collector, it was unlawful for anyone to take your money as alms. So you were unable to, if, even if you wanted to give money to the poor, you were unable to do it because they couldn't take it. So you were cut off from all connection of, to God's people. You were cut off from all of the means of God's grace to his people. So you lost your network of, of friends. You lost your support from your family and you lost the people of God. So you lost all of the stabilizing influences in your life, which is why tax collectors were notoriously immoral. They were notoriously promiscuous people. They were notoriously immoral people. Why? We can easily see why. Because when they became a tax collector, two things happened. They lost all the stabilizing forces in their life. And then they put a lot of money in their pocket. And those, thing, those two things together meant bad news every time. And that's who Jesus called to follow him. Now, these tax collectors, as I said a moment ago, were hated people. In fact, they were more hated than even the leper. Two weeks ago, we talked about the leper. 
And we talked about just how hated lepers were in that society because the leper was a person upon whom the judgment of God had been cast for their sin. But the tax collector was even more hated because the tax collector was a tax collector completely by choice. Now, sure, the leper's sins, that was his choice or her choice, but the judgment of God upon them was not their choice. The profession of tax collector was their choice. And furthermore, there was at least reason to be sympathetic to the leper. I mean, the leper, after all, had this hideous disease. The tax collector, not only did he not have this hideous disease, he had loads of money in his pocket. In fact, loads of your money in his pocket. Are you kind of starting to get a feel for just how hated the tax collector was? It was lawful. The Jewish law said it is not a sin to lie to a tax collector. That's just how far the Jewish system went to say, we hate these people. They are the scum of the earth. This is who Jesus called to follow him. Now, if we are correct in saying that this man Levi is the same one that the scriptures also know of as Matthew, then not only did Jesus call Levi to be a disciple of his, but he called him to eventually become one of his 12 apostles. So why is it that he's called Levi here and never called Levi again? Instead, he's called Matthew. I think, and again, this is just speculation. I think that Levi was given a name change. Some have thought, well, maybe Levi was his Hebrew name and Matthew was his Greek name. The only problem with that is they're both Hebrew names. So we also know that people often went by two names. But I think it's much more likely here that Levi was given a name change because he was given a new identity. You see, the man whom Jesus calls by the Sea of Galilee to be his follower is not the same man who wrote the gospel. I don't mean they're different people. I mean that Levi is a new creation. Levi was given a new identity, a new creation in Christ. He was given a new heart. He was given a new spirit. And so it would make sense from a man coming from such immorality for Jesus to perhaps say to him in an account that's not given to us in the Gospels, Levi, you are now Matthew. And from that point on, Matthew called himself Matthew. Even in his own gospel, he called himself Matthew because that's who he is. So this is most likely the one who wrote the first gospel, Matthew. Put in your mind this, just a real accurate understanding of who this is that Jesus called to be an apostle. And just think for just a moment at just how much at odds this is with the gospel that we all love, the gospel of Matthew. Everybody likes the gospel of Matthew, right? I mean, Matthew's such a great guy when he writes his gospel. Who doesn't like the gospel of Matthew? It's just a wonderful gospel. We all like the story of the wise men coming, with the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. We like the, the Great Commission and all that. And then all those other wonderful parts that are unique to Matthew's gospel, like when Jesus says in in chapter 11, come unto me all ye who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. We love those passages. Those passages were written 
by this man who was such a vile, immoral person prior to encountering Jesus by the Sea of Galilee. So what a radical change has taken place. Do you realize Matthew's gospel? We don't often think about this, but Matthew's gospel is probably the most humble gospel. Matthew's gospel was written by a humble man. Do you know that nowhere in Scripture are we ever given a single word that Matthew spoke? Nowhere in all of Scripture is one word recorded that Matthew spoke. And he wrote one of the Gospels himself. And he was a character in all of them. And yet, even in the Gospel that he writes, he records nothing that he said. In this instant where Jesus calls him to follow him, Luke says this in Luke chapter 5, that Jesus said, follow me. And Luke says, Matthew left everything and followed him. Matthew doesn't even say that. In Matthew's account, all he says is, Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew did. But Matthew left everything for Jesus. In fact, Matthew left more than the fishermen. Because the fishermen could always go back to being fishermen. In fact, they did. Remember in John 21, they did. Matthew left everything with a bridge burning behind him because there was no going back once he left that tax booth. Matthew truly forsook everything to follow this man, Jesus. And he writes this gospel to us that is just such a humble, lowly gospel that seeks in no way to shine any sort of attention upon himself. That's the change that was made in Levi's life in this man that we now know of as Matthew. Matthew. 